As we head toward Memorial Day, Nickerson Excavation and Construction asks everyone to stop and remember the sacrifices made by our military veterans in defense of our nation's liberty. Serving the New Limerick area for over 50 years, Nickerson Excavation and Construction is your one-stop shop for all your excavation, drainage, and road construction needs, offering good old family-friendly service. For an estimate or bid, please call Nickerson Excavation at 207-532-9391. That's 207-532-9391. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on Simul TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomenon, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. With over 28 years of broadcasting and more than 4,500 individual guests, the X-Zone is truly a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, as evidenced by the credibility, integrity, and professionalism of the guests that we bring to our international audience. If you have seen a UFO, had a close encounter, seen a ghost, Bigfoot, lake monster, or a story that you would like to share or have investigated, contact me, Rob McConnell, by sending me your email to xzone at xzoneradiotv.com or you can call toll-free 1-800-610-7035, extension 143, and on Skype, Exxon Radio TV. For more information on the Exxon Radio TV show with yours truly, Rob McConnell, visit www.exxoneradiotv.com or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next we meet here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember X-Zone Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. This This is is A Different different Perspective perspective with Kevin Kevin Randall. Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And good evening. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall, and this is, in fact, A Different Perspective. I know that many of you thought... We would be interviewing Nick Redfern today, and I thought the same thing. Uh, circumstances just uh, sort of um, collapsed on us, and we had to postpone that. So we'll be getting to Nick Redfern here in the next few weeks, I hope, uh, talking about UFOs and conspiracies and what his work has been. Um, it's just kind of a one of those things that happens, and we've got it all worked out to everybody's satisfaction, I suppose. I thought I'd mention that. The other thing I thought I would mention, for those of you who are familiar— Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert Friend had been one of the project officers, one of the leaders of Project Blue Book during the late 1950s. He was uh, retired as an Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. And what was interesting about him was, A, his attitude toward UFOs wasn't the same as many of the others who had been brought in to lead Project Blue Book, who were rabidly anti-saucer, anti-alien, and anything that suggested otherwise had to be a hoax, had to be a delusion, had to be a misidentification. Um, They just didn't want to hear anything that might lead to the extraterrestrial. Friend was more friendly than that and uh, seemed to revitalize the project a little bit, reorganized it somewhat, cleaned up some of the messes that had been left behind by the others who just really didn't care. Uh, 
So uh, he was a friend of, I guess, ufologists in that way. But more importantly was his background. He was a Tuskegee Airman. And during the Second World War, he had volunteered to, uh, to fight in the war, got the opportunity to go through the flight training. They had a special project they had set up in Tuskegee to see if the African-Americans had the abilities to fly aircraft, found out that they were just as good as everybody else, and in fact, some some ways were superior. So he was a member of the Red Tail Squadron. You might remember that movie from the earlier, so several years ago. And he was one of the people who was involved in some of that. But he had a very distinguished military career in that respect. Uh, and I think that uh, the thing that always bothered me about this was the number of, of African-Americans who joined the Amer American military during World War II. And I thought about that. If you look at the way things were in the 1920s and 1930s and the way the African-American population was treated, especially in the South, it, it always surprised me that so many of them had volunteered for military service during the war. And apparently during one of the uh, speeches he gave after people found out who he was and that he was a Tuskegee Airman, and they were more interested in that than, of course, the UFO aspect. But what the uh, one of the young men asked him why he had volunteered for that, you know, given the, the circumstances, and he said, because I'm an American and it was the right thing to do. And I thought, what a wonderful answer for that. And I think a lot of the men came back thinking that the situation would change now that they had proven themselves in combat, although they had done it many times in the in the past. Uh, the the uh, 9th and 10th Cavalry, the Buffalo Soldiers, were all African-Americans and uh, acquitted themselves quite well in the desert southwest and that sort of thing. So they, I think they came back with the idea things would change, and it took a couple of decades before the Civil Rights Act was passed and uh, more decades as everybody was working out those problems. But Robert Friend was an extraordinary man. He did, uh, uh, I mean, he was as brave as anybody you would expect in the Second World War. He was a fighter pilot uh, escorting bombers uh, on their raids in Germany and that sort of thing. So I thought I'd mention that uh, Robert Friend had passed away and that kind of left us with none of the people who had led Project Book, Blue Book being alive uh, today, with the possible exception of Carmen Murano, who we've talked to in, on this program in the past, and he kind of inherited by default, as I've said before. He was uh, the only officer after Quintanella left, and he was responsible for cleaning up the, uh, the files and getting everything put away and winding down Project Blue Book. To his credit, he saved an awful lot of that material. He didn't get rid of it as he was supposed to. He, was, he thought it should be saved, and it's now in the hands of a number of ufologists, including uh, Rob Mercer, who we've had on the program as well, talking about some of the things that he found in the files and the importance of that sort of thing. So we're now to the point where but with Project Blue Book, we have very few of the people who served with Blue Book still alive, able to give us insight into how that uh, operated and uh, how things, I guess, evolved from the beginning, which was Project Sign, when people were in the Pentagon were panicking about the uh, UFO situation, the flying saucer situation. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what was going on. And they realized the possible threat to the United States if it had been <clears throat> some Soviet invention then it showed that we were wholly inadequately prepared to, uh, I guess, counter any threat that the Soviets might have. Uh, so there was a great deal of angst in the beginning, and they wanted to find answers. And that was why Project Sign was created. In 1948, they had done an uh, estimate of the situation, and they determined that the flying saucers were interplanetary meaning they thought they were from another planet in the solar system, not realizing they would have to be interstellar. And when that report was forwarded to uh, the headquarters of the Air Materiel Command, or the up through the chain of command to the Air Force Chief of Staff, uh, General Vandenberg didn't like it at all, rejected it and said, this isn't right, and sent it back. And there was a great purge in uh, the project signed offices with an awful lot of the people being reassigned elsewhere and left in the hands of a couple of people who realized nobody really cared. So it fell into disfavor. The project was changed to Project Grudge. They weren't really doing anything. What they would do is a, a report would come in and they would kind of laugh about it. 
and they would try to figure out an, an explanation that would work, any explanation work, no matter how ludicrous that explanation was, and file it away. You know, in the, in the military, the attitude was, um, you know, if uh, you don't know what to do with it, uh, you paint it. And if you can't paint it, you move it. And if you can't move it, you salute it. Or if it moves itself, you salute it. Or when all else fails, you throw it away. And uh, that's kind of what was going on with Project Sign, which evolved into Project Grudge. But a general officer asked a question about a sighting that had happened, a radar sighting, a very good radar sighting at Fort Monmouth, and learned that he was being lied to. They weren't telling him the truth. So what he did was revitalize the project. He just got angry. And there's uh, information about that in Ed Ruppelt's book, um, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, and Jerry Clark in his uh, massive UFO encyclopedia talks about this and what was said and what was done. But General Cabell got extremely angry about that, and it dispatched people specifically from his office to investigate the Fort Mama sightings. And they eventually brought in um, Ed Ruppelt. And uh, I always kind of felt sorry for Ed Ruppelt, too, because he's called back to active duty. He was a bombardier during World War II, and uh, uh, I, th I think flew in the Pacific Theater. But he uh, was called back to active duty for the Korean War. And what hit, what happens, he gets assigned to Project Blue Book. I'm thinking, if I'm recalled to active duty, I want to get into the fight. I want to get out there into the fight. But he uh, ended up with Project Blue Book dealing with uh, flying saucers. It was Project Grudge when he took over, then it evolved into Project Blue Book. But I think the consensus is that um, Ruppelt took a good, did a good job. He, he tried to find out what was going on. He really wasn't caught up in all of the politics of, of dismissing UFOs and uh, reorganize the thing. Once he left, it kind of fell into disrepair again up to basically the end. It was just a public relations um, operation which was designed to convince the public there was nothing to UFOs and they would lose their interest in it and the Air Force could close down Project Blue Book and wouldn't have to deal with the public end of it anymore. Uh, that, of course, didn't happen until much later. But, uh, you know, you're looking at the Project Blue Book and the way things went there. There's an awful lot of good cases in Project Blue Book. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your Quarter Pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Book that were mishandled, I guess you would say by the Air Force, by the investigators, because a lot of them just didn't really care about it. They didn't want to get involved deeply in it. They thought it was bad for the career. And we've seen some of that uh, in recent weeks as we talk about some of those other things. But, uh, you know, Blue Book, uh, if you go through the files, if you read them carefully, there are hints of things in there that other people haven't talked about before. There was something called Operation Horsefly, for example, which was an idea of, of, of bringing in a number of uh, company-grade officers, lieutenants and captains, and using this as an opportunity to send them out and get them TDY pay and that sort of thing, investigating UFOs. I don't know if they ever did much with it, but there's documents in the Blue Book files that talk about Project uh, Horsefly. And Project Moondust, which became uh, sort of a... Uh, same same kind of investigation as Blue Book, investigating UFOs, but running concurrently with it. There's a couple of case files in the Project Blue Book files labeled Moon Dust. And if we'd been paying attention, we would have seen that earlier. But uh, Blue Book uh, really didn't do us any favors, and the Air Force didn't do, do us any favors. But we're learning some more things about that. And I think we're going to get into that when we come back right after this. And as I say, take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, not Blue Book. And you'll find some information that relates to uh, Robert Friend and his activities. And there's always a lot of stuff about Blue Book and what we've been able to find by looking through the um, files at that. So we'll be back right after this. So stick around.
It's hard to listen to the news without realizing we're living in volatile, unprecedented times. Yet never has there been such an opportunity to transform the human condition. As old structures fail, where can we find the guidance to co-create a better way? Find Your Path Home is an ever-evolving, leading-edge information, education, and healing resource center designed to support and guide you on your path to unity and enlightenment. Based on sound principles employed by shaman worldwide, we provide techniques that can support you through the current transitions, offering online shamanic classes, international long-distance shamanic healing sessions, complimentary Mission Evolution radio episodes and Stairway to Heaven TV vignettes, seminars, retreats, and much more. All of this can be found on findyourpathhome.com. So I was watching the X-Zone TV channel last night when I was abducted by aliens and they kept repeating to me over and over again, simultv.com, simultv.com. What's simultv.com? That's what I asked them. They had it written on the side of their UFO. How do you spell that? UFO. No, I mean simultv.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Right. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. Interesting that you were abducted by aliens in a simultv.com UFO last night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Now that you mention it, I remember now last night, I was awakened from a deep sleep. My great-grandmother was standing there. She said she'd come from the hereafter to tell me about simultv.com. She even spelled it out for me. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com. S-I-M-U-L-T-V.com, sonny boy. Wow. Yeah. Guys, you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com. Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course. We all know about SIMULTV.com. SIMULTV.com. And I am back. As I said earlier, uh, Nick Redfern and I have not been able to link up on the program today. We had some issues with... uh, Communications, basically. It wasn't really anybody's fault. We're trying to get that worked out so we can bring Nick on the program to talk about his his work uh, in ufology. When we left, I was kind of talking about um, Project Blue Book and how it had disintegrated. Other projects had been created that continued the investigation of UFOs. One of them was Project Moondust. And interestingly, that name was compromised in 1985. But it had a UFO component, obviously, and I bring it up simply because in 1985, when it was compromised, a number of people um, asked about it, and they said that name is no longer used. There is a, no, a new code name for it. And when asked about it, I said, we can't give it to you. It's properly classified. So there's evidence of a continuing of a UFO investigative program by the military uh, long after Project Blue Book was closed in 1969 and after... Uh, Project Moondust's name was compromised in 1984. I mention all of this because we're getting to the point now, and I talked to Stephen Bassett about this as well, to what, what I think of as disclosure, where for some reason there's pressure by some agency to disclose what we know about UFOs. And we see this in, in, in some of the information being re- released. One of the things that came out just recently was a conversation, an interview between Dr. Eric Davis, who was a member of um, NIDS, which was a scientific investigative group that was financed, I guess, by Robert Bigelow. And he now works in another organization in the Austin, Texas area, I believe. And a Navy admiral named Thomas Wilson. Couldn't think of his name for a moment there. Thomas Wilson. And I've had a number of queries to me about what do I think of the interview with Thomas Wilson. Well, if you go back and you read it carefully, Wilson really doesn't say anything of importance. He's kind of fed information by Davis during the interview, and he kind of responds to it, suggesting that there was something else going on. But Davis supposedly sat down with this Thomas, Admiral Thomas, and discussed this, and the notes have been published. You can find them on the internet. I think I've linked to them on my blog, uh, for those of you who wish, wish to read it, about, about the interview. But as I was looking back, I'd forgotten that uh, Davis had been on another radio program, and he had mentioned the Del Rio UFO crash as being real. This, this disturbed me greatly, because I knew quite a bit about the Del Rio crash. I was writing a book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, and I was updating some of the crash stories that I had told in other books. And one of them was this crash in Del Rio, Texas, 
and the sole witness, I guess, was a fellow named Robert Willinghams, who said he was a retired Air Force colonel. He'd been a fighter pilot. And he was flying in uh, Texas when these objects were spotted. And one of them seemed to be in trouble and crashed just across the Mexican border uh, in Mexico. And he returned to his base, Dias Air Force Base, landed, got a uh, private plane, a single-engine Cessna, and flew down and landed close to the crash site and, and saw the crashed uh, saucer and that sort of thing. It was chased off by Mexican authorities. Although there's some discussion about this, how this had come, some of the material had come to the United States for analysis. Anyhow, um, we believed Willingham. Any, a, a number of us did because he said he was an Air Force colonel, but nobody had checked his credentials. I thought others had done that. And so when I was putting together Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky, I thought I'd update that information. And interestingly, you know, with the internet today, you can find practically anything. And I typed in Robert Willingham and came up with all kinds of stuff. And I read the new story, the way it happened and all of this. And I said, this isn't right. This has changed radically. And I learned that there had been a, a, a report of it in, turns out it was in Skylook, which is the MUFON Journal's predecessor. And I actually found found the, the listing, and it turned out that uh, Willingham wasn't an Air Force colonel. He was in the Civil Air Patrol at the time, and the story is significantly different than he was telling today. It happened in 1948, and he was flying an F-94. Well, F-94s weren't operational in 1948. He hooked up with a guy named uh, Todd Zeckel, and Zeckel is the one responsible for the affidavit, but there's no date on the affidavit. Um, they misspell the name of Dias, and I'm thinking if you're, if you're stationed at an Air Force base, no matter what the name is, you're probably going to be able to spell it correctly. Um, the F-94 wasn't operational in 1948 when he said this happened, and the date changed to December of 1950. So I decided I'm going to find out more about the Willingham, and there's a way to find, you know, check military records of people. I found out Willingham had been, as he claimed, a, a veteran of World War II. He joined the military, the Army, in December of 1945, and for those of you who understand history, the shooting war had well, well ended long before that, and the Japanese had surrendered by then. But the war was not officially declared over until the middle of 1946. So if you joined in December of 1947, you were considered a veteran of World War II. And he, of course, embraced that without explaining the situation. Uh, but I could find no other record of him being a military officer. He claimed that he had been in Korea, he'd gone over as a radar officer and discovered that there were a couple of uh, P-51s, F-51s sitting around not being used. So he and a friend uh, took off and flew their own missions. And I'm thinking this is absolutely preposterous because as a military pilot myself from a combat environment, I knew that you couldn't do that because A, you had to check into the local area with the proper code words. There was artillery firing. You had to be able to get the gun target line so you didn't inadvertently fly through the um, the 105 and the 8-inch eight, uh, eight gun target lines. They lobbed shells. They don't fire direct. They lobbed them high in the air so you could fly into them. And I actually got hit by a 105 shell at one point. So that didn't make sense. So I called Willingham. I was able to find him. Thank you, Internet. And talked to him. He said, no, no, that's all wrong. That he had been he had been injured in... Uh, Korea, badly injured in Korea, and the, the UFO sighting didn't take place till the mid-1950s. He said he was uh, honorably discharged from the Air Force. Uh, he had been a fighter pilot, but because he had been injured, he was no longer allowed to fly fighters. So he joined the Air Force Reserve to fly fighters. And I have a number of friends who are in the Air Guard who could tell me about this. And they said, no, no, the problem was if you're in, injured in such a manner that it hurt your back or your legs or something like that. The problem is the ejection system. You can't be ejected out of the fighter if it's if it's damaged and you have to do that. But he could have flown bombers, he could have flown transports, there's a number of things he could have done as a pilot in the Air Force. No evidence that he was an Air Force pilot. The other thing I noticed is he had a private pilot's license, FAA given private pilot's license. I know of no military pilot who holds an FAA private pilot's license. The regulations are by the FAA that if you have 200 hours, you are eligible to apply for a um, commercial pilot's license. 
when I got back, actually, right after I got uh, out of the army, as a matter of fact, I took the FAA regular test. As a as a military pilot, you had to present your your flight record so they could see that. We got out of flight school with 210 hours, and we were told there was a ground school we could go to and learn the regulations so we could pass the test. None of us had wanted to do that at that point, but I did it after I got out of the army. So we all got commercial pilot's licenses at the point. I know of no military pilot who's gone through that procedure that ended up with a private pilot's license. It's not as good as the commercial pilot's license. So that was another problem with this story. I could find absolutely nothing that related to the Del Rio crash. Other than what he said, I could not verify his military credentials. Somebody sent me a picture and said, here he is in an Air Force uniform in the 1960s. And I looked at it and said, no, that's a Civil Air Patrol uniform. And you can see when you look, there's a metal plate that the Civil Air Patrol wore over the right-hand pocket that said Civil Air Patrol Auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force. And he had the his major leaf on one side, but the CA... P on the other side. So clearly it was the CAP uniform. So he was kind of massaging the information that way. And I've kind of kind of gotten off track here because I wanted to point out that there is no solid information that the Dale Real crash ever took place. And I've explored this on my blog any number of times. And you just type in Robert Willingham into the search engine and it'll bring up all the articles I've done about this, outlining all of that and presenting the documentation for Willingham's lack of military service. He was in the service for 13 months. He rose to the rank of E4. Um, he was not a, a, an NCO. Uh, corporals are NCOs, but it was a special technical rank. So he was not considered really a, a, an NCO and that sort of thing. So there's some real problems with that. The point being simply, Willingham was not honest about his military career. I could not verify any of it, uh, any way I looked at it, going through both the uh, archives in St. Louis where the records are stored. But there's something in the Air Force called the Air Reserve Personnel Center, Air Personnel Reserve Center, Air Reserve Personnel Center in Denver. They had no record of it, of him as well. So clearly he was a Civil Air Patrol pilot trying to convince everybody he was in the Air Force Reserve. Now I'm going to have to take a break here in just a minute. Um, and I've gotten a little bit deeper into Willingham than I really wanted to go because I want to talk about Eric Davis and the Dale Real crash and what he said about it and how it affects the Tom Wilson, uh, Admiral Wilson conversation interview that, that took place and how it suggests there might be some trouble with it because of the problems with Willingham, which I think I don't think Eric Davis knew and I don't think many people know. Uh, I've tried to point this problem out and some people get really annoyed at me for doing it, but there's no documentation that Willingham was ever an Air Force fighter pilot or a retired Air Force colonel. He's wearing awards and decorations he did not deserve um, because he had air, an air medal, for example. The only way to get an air medal is by participating in aerial flight. He was in the Army. He wouldn't have been participating in aerial flight. So as I say, take a look at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and you can learn everything you want to know about Willingham. And when I come back, I will tell you about Eric Davis and the Del Rio crash. So, you know, stick around and see what I have to say. How would your life change if you could develop the business and personal skills that you need in order to make more money? Do you want to learn how to achieve your big life goals faster? Then go to findhiddenmoney.com and get the Goal For It online course. The course teaches you how you can set and achieve your biggest goals while completely overcoming the roadblocks to your goals so that you can realize your dreams and imagine more success. Go to findhiddenmoney.com. Memorable dynamic presentations are a not-so-secret weapon in the business world. Do you have a powerful message that must be shared, but you haven't found a way to deliver that message? Do you want to be known as a top public speaker who gets amazing results? Are you ready to create and deliver your powerful message? Thomas Hides can help you create and deliver your speech to get the results you desire. Visit IconQuality.com.
Did you expect your business to flourish, but instead it plateaued or didn't get off the ground yet? Would you like to achieve massive goals and discover new sources of income within your business? When you're ready to experience that type of success with fast results, Cindy Hendricks is the business coach for you. Her work with entrepreneurs and business owners has been life-changing. To get you and your business where you want to be, go to imaginemoresuccess.com. Has the fear of public speaking stalled your business or personal life? What would you give to develop and maintain supreme confidence? Have an invaluable private program to always perform at your best. Imagine how you would feel. You can have all that and so much more today with Thomas Hyde's life-changing course called Number One Fear Unleashed. Visit NumberOneFear.com and be liberated from your fear of public speaking. I am back, joined by no one. That's why I had to say I am back. I thought I'd just mention for a moment here that there are some other fine programs about the paranormal on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, xzbn.net, or as my friends in other parts of the world say, xzbn.net. So uh, take a look at the website, and you can find, uh, I'm sure some programs are going to spark your interest. Take a look at those. Also thought I should mention that I'm going to be in Roswell during the festival this year, and I'll have an opportunity to chat with a lot of people, which is my plan. Uh so if you get down to Roswell, look look me up. I'll be sitting behind a table or doing a presentation here and there. Uh, ask some questions, chat, uh, tell me what you've seen in the way of UFOs and that sort of thing. Might be uh, kind of fun. When we went away, I had gone off on a tangent with Robert Willingham explaining why I don't accept the Del Rio UFO crash as important. So Eric Davis was telling people, and other programs, that the Dale Real crash is real. And you have to wonder, where did he get his information? Does, does, is he uh, aware of it? I think what's happened is there are a few people still out there who believe that the MJ-12 documents, uh, the, the original ones, are authentic. And the Dale Real crash is talked about in that document. It's... Uh, uh, the, the, the location is the El Guerrero, El Indio de Guerrero area, just across the Mexican border, which is right in the Del Rio area. Del Rio is a, a bigger, bigger area and an easier to spot on a map. So um, I believe that the Del Rio crash is a hoax, that Robert Willingham made it up, that Robert Willingham was not an Air Force colonel, was not a member of the Air Force, tried to convince people and convinced the government that they owed him a pension for his service in the Civil Air Patrol. And there, I've seen the documents where he was talking about how uh, they had met at um, one of the Air Force bases, and the, the, the Civil Air Patrol people met at the Air Force base. And that somehow translated to him being in the Air Force Reserve. Just so, so you know, the reason I was familiar with the Civil Air Patrol, I had been a cadet uh, when I was in high school. We met at the United Airlines facilities at Denver Stapleton Airport. So we had really great classrooms and really great facilities that um, the United Airlines allowed us to use. And the number of pilots for United Airlines were pilots in the Civil Air Patrol as well. So that's why I was familiar with the Civil Air Patrol. So Davis was talking about Del Rio. Now, you have to you have to wonder where he's getting his information. And if he's that confused about Del Rio, how accurate is his interview with Tom Wilson? Now, as I said, if you go through that, they talk about some of these things, some of these UFO-related things, items, and there's a hint that uh, Thomas is confirming some of it. But the real point here, I'm not, sorry, not Thomas, Tom, uh, Thomas Wilson is con confirming some of it. But the point is, Wilson has apparently denied that the interview is accurate. He said it didn't happen. And, and uh, Steve Bassett and I talked about this as well. And I, I thought that, you know, if the meeting did take place and they did discuss this material that would have been highly classified, Wilson would have had to deny the meeting took place. If it didn't take place, he, of course, would deny it took place. The only thing that would have made the people in the UFO field happy was if he said, yes, this is all accurate information. He didn't say that. There was another fellow there named Miller that was involved in this as well. He, too, has denied that this took place, this meeting took place or the the notes about it are accurate. 
So you have to wonder about this, given what we know about Del Rio, how accurate Davis's notes were. And that's what's bothered me about this whole thing, is that um, we have a problem, a minor problem with Davis. Now, I tried to contact Davis a number of months ago when this first Del Rio thing first popped up, and he didn't bother to respond to me. And I don't know if he knew who I was or he looked at my blog and discovered that uh, I was not a fan of the Del Rio crash or what may have happened. But I have a real problem with those notes. Now, when I was an Air Force intelligence officer, and I may have mentioned this before, I got a call one day. We were on um, what we called annual tour <laughs> or, or laughingly summer camp. It used to be a joke in the National Guard. You know what the difference between the Boy Scouts and the National Guard is? National uh, Boy Scouts have adult, adult leadership. Anyway, the uh, I was at the summer camp, which means we were on active duty for two weeks or something like that, 15 days. And I got a call from the newspaper, a newspaper in Kansas City. I was at Richard Gabauer Air Force Base, which is now closed. And the reporter was asking me questions about this event that had taken place, I think, in, uh, in Europe or Africa. I don't remember the details. I was fully aware of it. I knew exactly what he was talking about. I'd read the classified material about it uh, a day or two earlier. So I, I knew exactly what he wanted to know. But I'd gotten it from classified sources. So if I said, he was giving me some of the information, I said, well, yes, that's accurate. I have just now become a source for him, saying they could, you know, <clears throat> Lieutenant Kevin Randall at the Richard Bauer Air Force Base Intelligence Office said today that he, had, he was aware of this or blah, blah, blah. I couldn't do that. I had to deny all knowledge of it. And the reporter gets really angry at me, screaming and hollering about how dumb I was and I didn't know what was going on. I was lousy at my job. And I'm thinking, I'm pretty good at it here because I'm not telling you a thing. Uh, the point being that if you receive information from classified sources and you're dealing with someone and you don't know what their security clearances are, you don't know if they're authorized to uh, hear the information, you have to deny it. And that's what I did with with uh, with this reporter from Kansas City. And I don't remember what I don't know if it was a radio station, TV station or the newspaper, but I just denied everything. And he went away very unhappy. And so we can understand Wilson denying it, Miller denying it. But that doesn't really mean anything to us. And as I say, when you take a look at the interview, it seems that Davis was kind of feeding information to him, looking for some kind of um, positive feedback. And I, I looked at it and from my skeptical point of view, and I may be more skeptical to many in the UFO community, but um, I just didn't see anything of importance there that hadn't been sort of hinted at by Davis before uh, Wilson commented on it. So the um, report had gathered the, the, the 15 pages of this interview that uh, appeared on any number of blogs. And as I said, I, I, I've linked to uh, one of the places on my on my blog so that you can read the documents to yourself and decide whether or not you think they're, they're accurate. Um, I, I just don't think it's that big a deal uh, today. What's more important, I think, is this A-tip that we've been hearing about since last December. And that was the program that the Pentagon had run for a number of years, um, investigating UFOs. And one of the big deals was the USS Nimitz sighting. And we've been having a program on called Unidentified, which is run by all my old pals at the uh, History Channel. And this program is uh, based, I guess, partially on this ATIP program. And one of the guys running it is this Ilanzio Louis Elanzio. And, you know, I'm a little bit worried about this guy. I don't know if he's really who he claims to be. It seems that he is. And then the real important thing, though, really isn't what his credentials are. He's kind of running the investigation in a sort of a TV investigation. Uh, and what I mean by that, we get him in the car driving to places and interviewing people in their homes and that sort of thing. And uh, we have these videotapes and the first couple of programs, we, there's three of them showing this object that had been, I guess, caught on uh, gun camera films or heads up display or whatever. It was recorded on by the aircraft off the Nimitz. This seems to show something very unusual that they didn't, they couldn't quite identify. And the fighter pilots were a little bit uh, mystified. And that's really the important thing. We've got the video and it really doesn't show us much and it doesn't tell us much um, it, other than it is a blip seen on uh, one of the displays. 
But then you talk to the fighter pilots. You have the fighter pilots uh, saying, yes, I was there. I saw this. I did this. We chased it. This happened. Th that happened. That becomes more important than really Alonzo's credentials uh, because you've got the guys being who were there being being interviewed. What annoyed me most about the program, they start with a um, female fighter pilot. And no, I'm not annoyed that it was a female fighter pilot. I was annoyed because her face is blacked out and her voice is altered. And it's one of those um, things where, well, she didn't want to hurt her career. And I'm thinking, you know, they know what squadron you were flying with. They know when you were assigned to the Nimitz. It's not going to be hard to figure out who you are if the Navy wants to, um, I guess, exact retribution for blabbing about this uh, encounter. And I was, that was kind of the, the thing when I say, you know, it's kind of a, a TV program as opposed to a, a good investigation. But she's talking about what she'd seen. And later on, we get the uh, uh, flight leader for that uh, particular encounter. He's fully um, seen. We know who it is. He's given his rank, given his name, what he was doing, where he is now, and that sort of thing. I think he's out of the Navy. I think he's retired, which means he's sort of uh, beyond their capability to extract retribution. He's, he's can, he can talk about it. He doesn't have to worry about his military career being derailed. And that's one of the things that is kind of frightening about this whole thing is that the um, people involved in this, and there's a number of people, and we'll get to those people in a few minutes here, are concerned about their military careers. And you have to wonder about that as well. What kind of pressure would be bought, brought by the Navy or be brought by the um, uh, Pentagon for people talking about these sightings. So you, that suggests there's something something more important going on than just sort of an anomalous thing seen on radar and seen by the uh, cameras on the jet fighters. Um, so we'll take another look at more of this here in just a moment because uh, we're gonna we're getting close to a break here. And I thought I'd mention just again to take a look at uh, some of the other fine programs at the xzbn.net. I think you should take a look at that. I think there's some fine programs there. Take a look at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And don't forget to take a look at uh, Encounter in the Desert, which is my book about the Socorro UFO landing, which keys another thought if I can get to it a little bit later. We'll, we'll talk about that. But I'll be back right after this. Foundation focusing on evidence-based physical, mental, and spiritual interventions, including natural cancer cures, prayer, meditation, affirmations, nutrition, and other related holistic cancer prevention and cure modalities. These are used in cancer education, research, and financing care. I ask for your help to continue this important work by donating at www.holisticcancerfoundation.com. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I dot net.
Christopher Fulton is a survivor of the national security state. All he wanted to do was preserve history when he acquired a Cartier watch from the estate of President Kennedy's personal secretary. But that simple act set off a terrible chain reaction. He was pursued by the U.S. Justice Department and the FBI, thrust into the middle of the U.S. government's Assassination Records Review Board, even monitored and pursued by the Russian government. All because that Cartier watch was the missing link of evidence, a timepiece worn by JFK that fateful day in Dallas, a link resulting in Christopher being incarcerated and attacked for nine years because he opened a hidden chapter in history. The intriguing journey outlined fully in Christopher Fulton's memoir, The Inheritance, is available now through Trinday.com or Amazon.com. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination by Christopher and Michelle Fulton is a must-read, an incredible tale of how easily our own government can overrule justice. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination. I am still here. I am still alone. I'll be uh, finishing up a couple of thoughts here now. So we were kind of talking about the Navy fighter pilots. And in this first program, they showed three video videotapes, three, three uh, encounters. But they never really talked about the other two. We uh, did get to meet a radar operator who said he'd track the objects on radar on another ship, which suggests now we've got different levels of... Uh, or different, different avenues of confirmation here, different chains of uh, evidence, if you will. We've got the videotape, and now we've got the radar operator talking about having seen the objects on radar and, and seeing their extraordinary capabilities. And then we have the eyewitnesses, of course, the fighter pilots. So these very good sightings. But what about these other two tapes? We didn't get much about those. And what we find out is that um, those tapes came from another carrier battle group in the Atlantic, and it was different pilots who took uh, those those um, images as well. So now we have um, some of this going on in, in different battle groups. And then you begin to wonder, well, is there some kind of glitch in this new equipment that they're they're picking up? Um, and you, then you wonder, well, would you have the eyewitness sightings? Would they be seeing the stuff themselves? Uh, and we've only got a few seconds of each of the, the videos. So we can't really make a good solid analysis of it. But it's becoming intriguing. And you wonder why now are we beginning to get this sort of thing out of the Pentagon? And the Navy just announced that they were reevaluating their UFO investigations or starting new UFO investigations, which moves us to the next question, which is why now? It's been going on for like 75 years. Where the heck have you been before then? Or is this a continuation? And we just are now learning about it learning about your investigations. So as we take a look at it unidentified, they are building the case slowly and much too slowly for me. And as I've complained on my blog, that they seem to be able to cram 15 minutes of programming into the hour, uh, new information into the hour. So you get repetition after repetition. You go to a commercial break and the things that you just saw before the commercial break, they begin with after the commercial break. And so you get to see it all again. You get them talking to the people and what the people said and how they said it. And we go back to the um, uh, fighter pilot who was in, who's blacked out. We see her discussing it again, talking about the same stuff. So it's a great deal of repetition in the, um, in the uh, uh, hour of the program. But they drop in little hints that suggest stuff is going on. Some, some interesting stuff is going on. Like they waited for a week or two before we got to talk or hear from the radar operators. They talked, uh, they spent one whole episode chasing the radar images down into Mexico, uh, actually off the coast of Mexico to this rocky island that is a restricted area. And then they talked to a bunch of fishermen who said, yeah, we've seen strange things. And I'm thinking, has a fisherman not seen strange things? Uh, there's a lot of strange stuff that goes out in the in the sky that that fools people. I think Christopher Columbus even talked about strange things going on as he crossed the Atlantic back in 1492. Almost said 1892 for some reason. 1492. So the point simply is that the fishermen are seeing something strange. Isn't all that strange? I would like something. You know, did they take photographs? Did they get any photographs? Do they have any kind of other evidence to suggest it's more than just the eyewitness reports? Because as I, I think we all know now that eyewitness testimony isn't all that great. Sometimes it's 
really bad. And, and, and as you're interviewing somebody, you have to be very careful on how you ask the question so you don't imply things in it. And we, we see some of that going on where the interviewer will ask a question. I think Elizabeth Loftus in her um, book about false memories talked about how, you know, uh, they would they would show on the screen a car accident and then they would ask questions to see how well the people remembered what they had just seen. And she would say things like, well, did, did the green car run run the stoplight. And they would say, well, no, the green car didn't do it or the green car did. And the point was there was no green car. So by asking that question, she kind of implanted that memory. So you have to be very careful during your, your interrogations of people, what you say. But I'm intrigued. I'm, I'm really intrigued mainly because um, you've got multiple witnesses. You have multiple chains of evidence um, going on here. And the Navy is sort of... Um, uh, underwriting this, they're they're sort of behind it somewhat. They're not doing anything to stop it. They're not doing anything to get the people to be quiet. Although in the last epi episode, they talked about how some of the people that they were going to interview had backed out. And it, the implication was they'd backed out for fear of their career. And I don't know whether it's uh, their fellows just ridicule, oh, you've been seeing flying saucers, have you, that kind of thing, or if there was really some kind of pressure brought to bear to limit the number of people talking about these events. So, you know, you have to take a look at all of that when you're uh, investigating these UFOs. There is a historical precedent for people being uh, um, pressured to change their stories. I think in the Washington Nationals, we had a, uh, which was the sightings over Washington, D.C. in 1952. And there was an officer who'd been in the radar room and he went outside to look and saw something in the sky and came back and said, well, that's really weird. I don't know what I saw. But later I said, well, it was probably a star. And the implication there is, the suggestion is that he had seen, he'd been pressured to kind of change his story to suggest it was a star as opposed to anything really unusual, thereby confirming the radar sightings. The, um, the whole thing is kind of interesting in that respect. So I think that we need to, uh, we need to, I guess, look at it with a skeptical eye, but not with the debunker eye, which means, you know, well, there is no alien visigate visitation ergo that can't be alien visitation therefore it didn't happen the way it's been presented and that's a, a real possibility but you've got the people involved saying yeah this is really what happened to me so you've got to take a look at all of that the one other thing i wanted to talk about which really gets us away from i guess uh, disclosure and uh, some of the other things i've discussed here are reviews of books and the thing that annoys me about this is the egalitarian nature of the reviews. You do not have to have any kind of expertise to review a book. And I mention this because I've gotten a couple of reviews on my books that it's clear that the person didn't read it and they were reacting to my name on the book. And one guy, I think when Roswell in the 21st century came out, the guy said his review was, this book is crap or this book is no good. Um, there are no aliens. And my response was, you didn't read the book, did you? Because if he read the book, he would have understood what I was trying to say in that book about the Roswell crash and where the investigation stands today in the 21st century. What we know today that we didn't know 20 years ago or 30 years ago, what we know today that uh, we can prove about the case. It's not nearly the robust case we thought it was, but there's still some intriguing things about the case. And that, that kind of bothers me. And another, another fellow, uh, no matter what book I wrote, he didn't like it. It was terrible. And he says, well, I've done nice reviews of other books. But he was saying, he said, don't, don't read this book because Kevin Randall is a debunker. Well, no, I think of myself as somewhat of a skeptic. I think of myself as someone who goes where the evidence leads me. So I don't have a preconceived notion. Oh, I might invest investigate enter investigation. I entered the Roswell investigation, for example, thinking that we would find the explanation. It'd be some kind of a balloon project. Um, and I thought that right up until the time I talked to Bill Brazel, um, he, the, he being the um, son of the rancher who found it, and it, it found some of the debris himself and his descriptions of what he told me uh, didn't fit with anything that I'd ever heard of, uh, which isn't to say that there wasn't some kind of experiment that we don't know about or something like that. But the point simply is, I realized it wasn't a balloon. And um, I remember as we were driving back to Albuquerque to catch the airplanes, airplane to go home, I mentioned to Don Schmidt, you know, there's a lot more that we need to do. We need to come back for another investigation because a lot of the things hadn't worked out.
Um, but what I'm trying to say here is that I go into the investigations, maybe with a bias toward the extraterrestrial, but my eyes aren't so closed that I don't see where the truth takes me. And oftentimes that really annoys people. They want me to validate their belief structure. And if I don't do that, they become angry. Or if I've um, uh, not solved the case, they become angry because can't you see this explanation right here in front of you? Well, no, I really can't see that because I don't read it the same way. And I, th I think in any investigation or anything you're doing like that, you're going to have that kind of variation. I mean, people are going to interpret the information the way they want. In fact, my PhD dissertation was about the identification of anomalous stimuli, meaning simply, if you saw something strange in the sky, how did you identify it? And it turned out that if you believed in UFOs, well, it might be a UFO. If you believed in ghosts and other sort of paranormal phenomenon, that's what you came up with. You identify these anomalous uh, stimuli in the way that fits into your belief structure and makes you more comfortable, I suppose. And if you want to believe it's aliens or hope that it's aliens, then that's the direction you go. And we have to be careful in the investigations when we do that, when we're doing, when we're looking at things. So we do not just jump at the conclusion we want to see. We have to ask the extra question. And uh, Carl Flock had interviewed a couple of the firefighters, uh, one of the firefighters for Roswell, and got the information that the firefighters hadn't gone out there and said that, well, that turns Frankie Rose's story into nonsense. I interviewed the same guy and uh, got the same explanation that there was nothing. The firefighter didn't go out, fire department to go out there until I asked a subsequent question, which was, did you know Dan Dwyer, Frankie Rose's father? And he said, oh, yeah, he went out there. Carl didn't ask the question. Dan asked a follow-up question. So the point simply is you have to take the investigation where it goes, and that's what I attempt to do. So sometimes when people are reviewing the books, they're annoyed because I do not validate their belief structure, or I come to a conclusion that they do not accept. So there you go. I just wanted to mention that because some of these reviews annoy me, and as a, as a writer, you want everybody to like your stuff. You realize that everybody, not everybody's going to like your stuff, but it, but if you're going to review a work, you ought to at least be fair in the review and not bring your own personal animosity toward me into it, I guess is what I'm saying. I will be back next week with another edition of A Different Perspective. So uh, look us up and give a listen. Thank you. If you are looking for a safe, zero-calorie, natural option to the harmful artificial sweeteners on the market today, Just Like Sugar is what you're looking for. Just Like Sugar is a wonderful natural alternative for those health-conscious people who choose a calorie-restricted diet with a great, pure, sweet flavor that tastes just like sugar. Just Like Sugar is a great natural option for people suffering from diabetes and may be useful in restricted diet programs where standard sugars are not allowed and does not cause a laxative effect of some other sweeteners. Just Like Sugar comprises a perfect blend of chicory root fiber, natural calcium, natural vitamin C, and Just Like Sugar sweetness comes from the natural flavors from the peel of the orange. Just Like Sugar is a natural alternative to harmful artificial sweeteners and will change the way that you believe all natural sweetener products taste. Just Like Sugar is available at your local Whole Foods markets, Wild Oats markets, Henry's, Sun Harvest, and many other fine natural food stores in the U.S., Canada, and worldwide. They are here, and they've been here for thousands of years, making their presence known in the shadows. They might be seen by a lonely motorist on a deserted road late at night, or by a frightened and confused husband in the bedroom he is sharing with his wife. But who are they? What do they want? Why are they here? Perhaps most concerning, has the government been aware of their presence all along? 
The new book by Ellie Marzulli, UFO Disclosure, The 70-Year Cover-Up Exposed, delves into the world of UFOs. Can full disclosure be soon? Order now and receive a free hour and 37-minute DVD on the UFO phenomenon, UFOs Are Real. Get both the book and the DVD, a $40 value, for only $19.99. To order your book and DVD today, go to lamarzuli.net. That's L-A-M-A-R-Z-U-L-L-I.net. You have heard of the X-Zone? Now watch it on TV, plus 500 video games, live TV channels, free video on demand, worldwide, and more. Does this sound like tomorrow's television? Well, it is, but you can have it today, right now. It is Simul TV. Simul TV offers what the others only wish they could provide 15 exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci Fi, and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. 500 built in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand live streaming events from around the world, interactive online network, and much more. Tomorrow's TV today, Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at simultv.com. Do it today. <laughs> 